Hi, thank you for joining us on one of the most comprehensive podcasts devoted exclusively to family offices, Family Office World. I'm your host, Ron Diamond, Chairman and CEO of Diamond Wealth. We represent 100 single family offices ranging in size from $250 million to $30 billion. I've been the keynote speaker at dozens of family office conferences around the globe and have spoken at over 150 family office conferences in the past five years. I'm in the process of writing a book on family offices and have consulted with dozens of firms who want to work with family offices, including banks, accounting firms, law firms, philanthropies, and various service providers who want to know what it takes to get in the door and then add value to the family office community. I serve on the board at Stanford University and teach courses in their graduate business school, engineering school, and entrepreneurship program. I chair the Chicago chapter of Tiger 21, the investment group for enhanced results with 750 members worldwide, representing assets in excess of $75 billion. And I serve as the chairman of the advisory board for four privately held companies, as well as serving on the advisory board for six public and privately held companies. Family Office World takes you deep into the inner workings of family offices. Each episode will have a different expert who works closely with family offices. Our goal is twofold. One, help family offices become more institutionalized and connect with each other directly throughout the country. And two, help service providers navigate the best way to add value and ultimately have family offices as clients. Please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Well, I'm thrilled to be here today with a good friend and somebody who I would arguably say is the top person in the country in the philanthropic field working with family offices and Karen Yanis. Karen, first, it's a pleasure to have you and thank you for uh, for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Ron. We have lots of good conversations together and it's nice to be doing this one on a podcast. So we work with family, a lot of family offices and in the family office world, philanthropy is obviously a very important segment for most family offices. So you spent your career working in the philanthropic sector with celebrities, like you, I know you launched Oprah Winfrey's philanthropy, and also high net worth families. What are some of the trends that you're seeing now? There's a lot of big changes on the horizon right now. And big data has been a boon for watching changes in philanthropic trends. Now, we're hearing about trends across populations of multiple millions of people, and we have a much deeper opportunity for analysis and can understand things better. So think road safety and what it is to analyze data on road safety and what it means to have your lights on during the day and what kind of, of mortality factors into that. Um, we've seen in certain areas that have adopted practices based on big data, an enormous decrease in, in um, road mortality, which is really amazing. We also see issues related to orphan diseases through big data and can flesh out orphan diseases over different kinds of environments and some of the impacts on, on those diseases. Um, the Gates Foundation recently funded a report um, both researched and published by The Economist on the future of philanthropy. And they talk about blockchain, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, and drones all having a huge impact on giving. And we're going to see this really manifest in the next few years. We're also seeing much more of, an, of interaction between businesses and philanthropy and thinking about, okay, social change isn't just the purview of private foundations. We see businesses thinking more along the lines of shareholders to stakeholders, 
than we used to. And there's a lot in the press about that right now. It's actually really interesting because when you're talking about big data, a lot of people would think intuitively that's just for business, but you're saying that in the philanthropic world, big data is really driving everything as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you can look across populations and see what what a difference inputs make, um, it's, it's huge for the sector as a whole. Got it. So, you know, I know that you uh, work a lot across generations and families. Talk, if you would, about some of the differences and similarities across the generations. You know, this is such an interesting space, Ron, and you and I have had some great conversations about it. First of all, the idea of succession that was really thought of as um, as a standard just maybe 20 years ago is no longer the same. We have boomers who are finishing their um, finishing their work lives and not wanting to step out. They they want to continue to give. They want to continue to use their their creative capital, their social capital, their financial capital. And then we have the emerging generations coming in thinking very differently. So so much of what's happening right now is an integration of ideas and kind of exposing some of the assumptions that that people make across generations and thinking about how we can work together as effectively as possible. Often that's across different sources, um, and it's thinking about new uses of capital. So we're, we're seeing a lot of that, and I think it's a particularly exciting time. It's very interesting. So can you touch on the, the, the sources of philanthropy? In other words, what do you see as the most effective sources of philanthropic capital? Yeah, I think that we ask that question too early. And sometimes we have to ask it because people have made investments. But I always recommend to my clients that they think long and hard about what they're passionate about and what kind of capacity. And capacity, not just financial capacity, but their time, um, how they want to tap their networks, what kind of what kind of lift they want to do before they start a private foundation. Because private foundations are labor intensive and people aren't necessarily aware that that's going to happen. A lot of a lot of people also want to start nonprofit organizations because they have a passion. And there's so many nonprofits in the field right now catalyzed by post 9/11 when um, when the IRS lowered its standards for creating a, um, and, and expedited the creation of nonprofit organizations. There's so many of them that there's a lot of duplication in the field and there are ways for people with passion to really engage without having to start their own thing. Um, And you can still create legacy around working, partnering with other organizations. So that said, I don't think that private foundations or creating a nonprofit is necessarily the way to go, but donor advised funds are a great way to engage. You know, um, private foundations have minimum distributions. Donor advised funds don't, but on average, people are distributing much more through donor advised funds and not thinking about them as legacy in the, in the same way that they do private foundations. And there's also a whole host of, um, of trusts based on um, what estate planners think is best for your family and, um, and insurance. You know, some people invest in, in life insurance and leave the, um, you know, and, and make the beneficiary a particular charity or a set of issues. So in this space, I recommend thinking about what you're passionate about, researching it, and then developing the sources that you're going to use um, and aggregating those sources that are, that are driven toward the uses. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's great. Uh, great advice. Um, now, I know you're part of the Women's Philanthropy Institute board. Is women's philanthropy really different from, let's say, family philanthropy? You know, I'm so glad you asked that question. So. The Women's Philanthropy Institute does research 
on exactly this. And um, recently just did something called All In For Women and Girls, how women's funds and foundation donors are leading through philanthropy. And it's no surprise that women give more to causes related to women and girls. So women's health, women's education, like STEM, um, women donors are less likely to wait until retirement to do their giving. And I think that was one of the really interesting takeaways of this report. They embrace a holistic and less siloed approach to philanthropy, and they see themselves as activist donors, really deeply engaged. They tend to be more motivated than men in giving back to their communities. This is really interesting, but this is a trend across philanthropy, less motivated by tax efficiency and giving and really interested in figuring out the right way to solve a problem. There's another study that came out around the same time called um, Women Give 19, which focuses on gender and giving across communities of color. And one of the key takeaways there is that race doesn't really have a significant effect on the amount given to charity when they took income and other factors into account. So the WPI is doing really good work and women are rising up as philanthropic givers in their own right. It's really interesting. You know, I know in 2017, a little over $400 billion was distributed through tax-exempt vehicles. Is that a win for charities? You know, giving USA's 2018 study found that just over, over $400 billion, $410 billion went to charity, which crossed that $400 billion line for the first time. And the sector kind of had a, a rally. People were really excited about that. But when you consider what might be different if investment capital were put into the picture. So there was a private equity overhang in 2017 that was over a trillion dollars. So thinking about shifting our methodology and our thinking about ways to use private market capital for impact is something that more and more people are doing. It's like that concept of shareholder to stakeholder, where ROI includes employee well-being and retention, a sustainable community footprint, and good corporate social responsibility. So ESG lenses are really important, ESG being environment, social, and governance. Um, and we have data that shows that well-run, responsible companies have a better ROI anyway. So why not do it? And then, Ron, you and I have, have um, had the good fortune of meeting people who are running groups that evaluate those investments on large scale through analytics and advisory reporting. And Madeira Global is, is one of those that comes to mind. Yeah, Alexander Carr's terrific. You know, one of the things I've heard you talk about is, and I hear you talk about this a lot, is donor intent. So can you talk to me about what that means and what the consequences of not thinking it through? So let's say your approach to fund an exhibit in a museum and you do it in memory of someone who you loved, maybe your, you know, your father-in-law, your grandfather. Museum exhibits tend to be pretty expensive, so it could be a $10 million give. And what happens when that exhibit is retired? So thinking through what the future looks like is really critical when you make a donation like that. And, under, and this is really the case, not only for the donor, but also for the organization that accepts the money. So here's, here's a case I found that I thought was pretty interesting. Vanderbilt University received a donation in 1913, right? 1913, over 100 years ago today, from the Daughters of the Confederacy. And, uh, of the, and the Civil War ended less than 50 years before that. So the Daughters of the Confederacy, Confederacy wrote a, a gift um, for the George Peabody College for Teachers for $50,000 to build a dormitory, a portion of which would provide rent-free housing for students of Confederate ancestry. And it was to be called the Confederate Memorial Hall. It was completed in 1935. So thinking back historically, 
that was before World War II started and well before the civil rights era. So fast forward to 2002, Vanderbilt has a new president. He, he decides to change the name of the dormitory to something that's not quite so offensive to much of its faculty and student population. But the United Daughters of the Con Confederacy, which is still a thing, sued. And the, the choice that the judge gave to the college was either to return the present value of the original gift to the group or to keep the name on the dormitory. So the dormitory is still called Confederate Memorial Hall, but colloquially referred to as Memorial Hall. So if Vanderbilt didn't have a lens into what the future would look like when they accepted that money, but thinking it through now, look, looking back at it, it's a challenge. That's amazing. Um, so, you know, we've got so many big issues now in philanthropy and, and you know, in the world. How do um, big social problems how do they get solved? Yeah, it's, it's one of those really wonderful questions to, to think about in terms of structuring social change. And, um, and I would suggest that there are lots of, lots of ways, but there's not a single element that can actually be the catalyst. Big social problems like mortality on the roads, like car deaths, big social problems, fixing the education system, often take public policy. So it's it's usually that philanthropic dollars, invested and committed donors, are, can be the catalyst for change by partnering with research organizations, by working with the government. There's a number of public policy schools, but there's one graduate public policy school at the Rand, at the Rand Corporation called the Party Rand Graduate School. And they have a program that, that educates educators, so professors in historically black universities, universities and colleges, and Latino universities and colleges, Native American universities and colleges, um, and bringing people together to study public policy and learn about public policy so they then can go back to their communities where they're teaching chemistry or social science or history and have an element of public policy so that those social issues that are key in embedded in the community can start to can start to shift and people have access to it. So I, I love that model. There are other ways to engage in large scale, but they tend to have to be post-competitive. We have so many organizations that are competing for dollars that getting people to sit around the table who are working on similar issues and have deep conversations about what they do well and partnering together is one of those ways. Got it. Now, I have to ask the question because, you know, we live in a celebrity culture and obviously you helped to launch Oprah Winfrey's philanthropic endeavors. Can you talk for a minute about A, how you got involved in that and then B, kind of what, what your role was with that? Yeah. Um, you know, it was one of those jobs I never thought I would get, but absolutely loved. It was really, really wonderful to work with her. I was hired to help develop Oprah's Angel Network, which is a public charity that had started on television. Before I came in, Paul Newman, who had just started Newman's Own, um, was on the show and, and saw one of, the, one of the highlights. Angel Network would highlight an a founder of an organization doing work in a community. And they tended to be relatively small organizations, but hugely passionate people who did things like pulled prostitutes out of prostitution and educated them and, and helped them get work. Another one I remember was a group that took um, incarcerated young people um, in, in juvenile de detention and taught them how to train emotional support animals. So they would learn, learn how to train them, learn to love the animal, and then have to let it go so that it could go on to help someone else. And all of these programs had really great outcomes. 
So Paul Newman saw one of these programs and, um, and he gave $100,000 on, on air. And that's when it became a public charity. Um, Jeff Bezos followed just a few months later and, and donated $5 million of Amazon stock. Now, this was before the Kindle came out. So, um, so then it really launched into a, a true public charity. And um, what happens in many families is once they start giving, they look at all of their giving. So I was then able to do some work with Oprah on her private foundation as well, um, building a governance model and putting money into the field for education, um, much of which went into both the Mid-South and in Africa. Um, a lot of work in, in the Mid-South post-Katrina. I think we put about 1,400 families back in homes after Katrina. So it was really sacred work. Yeah, and I would imagine she'd be a pretty fun person to work with. She was, she was wonderful to work with. And there was just a great team there. And then I know after uh, you, know, you worked for Oprah and you did a phenomenal job you know, launching it pretty much from scratch and, and really scaling that, Talk about your next endeavor, because, you know, I work in the family office world, and you then w went to work for the Crown family, who's one of the most prominent family offices in the country. Can you talk a little bit about how you got engaged in that and kind of what your role was there? Because I, I would assume they have different priorities in that family office than perhaps Oprah did. Well, um, very different from one family to another, whether it's a celebrity. And I think about Oprah's philanthropy as family philanthropy, even though it was celebrity philanthropy. From, from one to another, it varies dramatically. And the Crowns, as anybody in Chicago knows, are enormously generous um, and they're, they're quite a large family. So I was president of Crown Family Philanthropy and helped them develop it over a number of, of years. Um, and in the process, got a chance to learn a lot about what their values were, as, as I do with my other clients. And it was just such a tremendous joy to work across generations and across family lines with that family. Sure. Now, you know, I know you work with, um, you've done a lot of work with not just the Crown, but with several family offices. If there's a family office that is, they're philanthropic, but they don't know how to do it efficiently. In other words, their relative might have died of cancer. So that, you know, they might intuitively think, well, I'll just give a million dollars to the American Cancer Society. Can you kind of give some, some thoughts or advice on if a family office is, if they just recently formed or if they've had a liquidity event, or even if they've been around for a long time, how they should kind of think about um, what questions they should ask in order to develop their initiative? You know, Ron, it's, um, it, it's such a thoughtful question because there are so many families that, that are thinking this way and are thinking about legacy. And people think about philanthropy and giving from an intrinsic perspective when they're at an inflection point. And that in, fa in family offices means either a liquidity event or a life cycle event. So the, they are about to sell the business, sold the business, but typically it's a year or two after they've sold the business and are now thinking that they want to do something as important as the business and that they still have a lot of life and, um, and commitment in them. And they're no longer working day to day in the business. Or someone marries into the family and says, wait, I see your family has been giving for a while. How are you doing it? Can you explain it to me? Or someone, someone dies it's harder for people to think about their own mortality and create legacy. Although if it's, if it's done well by an advisor, it really helps a family long-term. And I've seen both, I've seen this work really well and I've seen it work really poorly when plans aren't made and a significant amount of money is left without any kind of direction. 
It's also wonderful for the children in the family, whether they're in their teens or whether in their, they're in their 50s, to have a sense of understanding what their, what, what their family legacy is and how they personally can engage. And this happens really well um, when an advisor works between wealth generators and wealth inheritors. Um, there's, there can be a gap there, and having somebody from the outside come in and help contextualize some of those ideas is enormously helpful to families. So, and I know you've done a tremendous job in working across different generations. So when you look at, you know, the millennials right now, they're a, a completely different world than the generation that we're from. When you're working with families, and let's just say the patriarch or matriarch, um, their cause is, let's just say, climate change, how do you engage the children? And the children could be 50 or they could be 10 or 15, but how do you engage the children and educate them about not just the fact that the climate change is a real problem, but to really emphasize why it's so passionate for their parents and why it's so important. How, how do you message that? It's so interesting, Ron, because often it's the other way around. It's the kids who are hearing about it in school or who are, are seeing it taking place. But I think all of us, when we travel, are seeing that climate change is an extraordinarily real thing. You know, whether it's flying over um, farmland and seeing how how soaked it is and how long it took for our crops to start um, to start growing this year, or whether it's trips up to Alaska, which many, many people take to see how the ice caps are floating away. It's an important co conversation to have and one that needs to be contextualized between generations. And in contextualizing an issue, what's really important is to inject integrity and really listen to each other. So I work with with individuals and with families on providing them with resources that work for them in the way that they learn. Sometimes it's the same across family members and sometimes it's very different. Sometimes there's someone who loves to read books and articles and somebody else who only wants to watch videos. Um, and all of that's okay because we're fortunate to be in a society where information is brought to you in a number of different formats. The other really important thing is meeting people who are researching, meeting the people on the ground who are actually doing this work and studying it, and then other people who are investing in these areas. So the learning piece is largely what brings families together. And it's not something that happens right away. It takes time. And there's great advisors in the field. Having an outside advisor help develop that learning plan if you're thinking about giving away significant money. The goal is to create legacy, to contextualize values across family members, and really to do it together. What, one last thing that, this, that works so well in this environment is the ability to talk about money across generations. Philanthropy is a really safe place to do that because you don't have to talk about illiquid assets. You can talk about what you have, what's there for distribution, and really start to understand how the family works around it and then build from there. You know, one of the interesting things that I found in the family office world is, you know, 25% of family offices make it to the second generation and 10 make it to the third and five make it to the fourth. So the model is flawed. And I think part of the problem is that everyone spends so much time trying to create alpha with investments, and that's important but they don't really focus on the soft skills. Can you take a minute and talk about why you feel that philanthropy is going to help families stay together and bond more so than just making great investments? 
Yeah. Creating social change together is a, is a win across a family. Being able to agree on family values and then, you know, as I mentioned before, to contextualize them for the time, to get family members to the table, to think about what's really important to them and to understand issues that are, you know, not necessarily obvious. So if we give, are we going to do this publicly? If we give, are we going to do it under the radar screen? One of my favorite foundations is the Cerdna Foundation, which is now, I think, six generations in the making. And the guy who founded it was John Andres in the mid-1800s. And he spelled his name backwards to start the foundation because it wasn't about his name, but it was about his family. And now they have hundreds, I think 300 family members who, are, who have access to be part of, of this organized um, family philanthropy and really understand what their what their ancestors' values were. Sure. So, are you in general optimistic or pessimistic as far as the general direction of where philanthropy is going, just from a macro standpoint? I am optimistic. I'm excited to see the changes that are happening. Um, I think that philanthropy is much less siloed than it used to be, that we're thinking about different sources, we're thinking about different approaches to uses of funding, we're looking at collaborations, there's a lot of great data in the field, we understand how to evaluate things that just a decade ago we were really struggle, struggling with. So I, I'm extremely optimistic about philanthropy. I think it's a unifying factor and is some of the glue, some of the catalyst that can help, um, that can help social change. So I've heard you speak at numerous conferences, doing a lot of keynotes, and you know you are always extremely well received in both small, intimate settings as well as large conferences. What do you want to leave our listeners with as far as a message? Think about what's important to you. Think about the things in the world that you can have an impact on and what it would mean to bring your family into that. As advisors, think about how we best can be responsible and, and guide families that we know can really make a difference in the world. Um, there's, there's a lot to do and there's a big space that's left for, um, for private philanthropy to, to be a catalyst for social change. Got it. And, you know, we represent, because we represent so many different family offices, anytime there's a question of philanthropy, you know, you're my go-to person that I go to. If somebody wants to get a hold of you or reach you, um, what's the best way to contact you or to get a hold of you? My company is Crowland Consulting, C-R-O-L-A-N-D Consulting, and it's Karen, C-A-R-E-N, at CrowlandConsulting.com. Terrific. Well, Karen, it, it's a pleasure for several reasons. One, philanthropy is such an important part of life and what you do is so relevant and so important. And I'm also thrilled because I consider you a close friend. So Thank you very much for your time and your input. You've been terrific. I do as well, Ron. It's a pleasure talking with you, and I look forward to speaking together at, at future conferences. Thank you for joining us on Family Office World. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, rate it five stars and leave a review. Join us again next time for another episode of Family Office World. Thank you and have a great week.